We are in Mark's gospel, of course. We are in chapter 9, and we will be looking at a number of verses this morning, specifically verses 30 through 50. It seems that in many ways we are consumed with the idea of greatness. Sometimes it is in a general sense, you will hear people say that they want to leave a legacy or they want to be remembered after they are gone. Other times it is more specific, like being great and in a particular area of our life. The question then becomes, how do we measure greatness? If we want it so badly, what is the measure of whether or not we have attained it? And certainly there are many ways to answer that question. We could measure greatness in the athletic arena, debating from stats who is the greatest athlete in their sport or at their given position. And these kinds of discussions are regularly held on sports talk radio, or even among athletes themselves who will boldly declare these days that they are, in fact, the greatest at their position. And of course, if they believe that, then they want to be paid accordingly. Well, speaking of money, perhaps that is in and of itself a measure of greatness. Those who have large sums of money are great because of what they can do or buy with the money that they have. And to that, we might add things like fame, influence, or even beauty. In fact, there is a category now called influencer. There are people on social media who call themselves influencers because they are paid to market a product on social media because they have large followings. And the assumption is that if they are seen with a product, then many others will buy it as well. Certainly, we would consider someone great who has risen to the top of their field. Whatever career they have chosen, if they get to the top or near it, then they must be great. So it's not just athletes, it is business owners, CEOs, or in the Christian world, celebrity pastors. If they have been able to reach the top, then it must be because they are great. And because we have an ambition to be great, our thoughts are largely on ourselves and what we need in order to achieve our goals, including a constant need to compare ourselves with others. After all, greatness must be measured in part against other people. I am greater because I have achieved more or accomplished more than the majority. Well, like so many things, this is not a new nor unique issue with contemporary society. Though, of course, social media does make it more pronounced and prominent. Instead, we are going to encounter today the same ambition and the same desire for greatness in the first century, among the disciples of Jesus. They wanted to be great. And in response to their desire for greatness, Jesus does not rebuke them. Instead, what Jesus does is change radically the definition of what it means to be great. That is, He changes the measure by which we decide whether or not someone is great. So today we are going to be talking about a life of greatness. And frankly, I do hope you strive for a life of greatness as long as your definition of what it means to be great is in accord with what we see here in this text. So a life of greatness, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. 
they went on, that is the disciples and Jesus, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, that is certainly a lot of verses to tackle in one sermon, and at first glance, it appears that they really don't have a lot in common, at least not connected like we would think. In fact, some do believe that this is a group of sayings that Jesus taught not in one setting, but perhaps on multiple occasions and in different settings. Mark would then have simply been grouping them here for his purposes. But it's also possible that Jesus uttered all of this together while in that house in Capernaum, though that does not mean that he did not repeat it in other locations. It is likewise true that all of the sayings here have to do with discipleship. I'm using the term greatness because of the argument that the disciples were having over who would be great, but we could equally say that what I'm going to talk about this morning are marks of genuine discipleship. But first, we find the second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, teaching us that a life of greatness is a life of sacrifice. That's the first point. Greatness equals a life of sacrifice. Jesus is now leaving the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he is merely passing through Galilee. Galilee has been the focus of his ministry for his entire public ministry, 
probably a year and a half or so at this point. It has all been centered in and around Galilee, but now he is merely passing through it. Because his focus is no longer on Galilee, his focus now is on Jerusalem, and what we see in this text is the first leg of his journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, where he will, of course, be arrested, killed, and will rise again. And he is using this journey not for more public ministry at this point. Instead, he is using this part of the journey for private teaching to his disciples, getting them ready for what he and they will experience when he arrives in Jerusalem, and more importantly, I suppose, for them, their ministry afterwards. And certainly this will include what will happen to him. He says that he will be delivered into the hands of men. That word delivered into is the same word that we find of Judas betraying Jesus. But here most believe it is what we call a divine passive. That means that God is the subject of this verb. God is the one delivering Jesus into the hands of men. It is God who is handing over his son who will then be our sacrifice so that we might be forgiven and set free. And the guilty party in this case is not the religious leaders, though they are certainly implicated as well. That's what the first prediction said. But here it is mankind in general. He will be handed over to men or humanity and to be killed by them, the very ones for whom he is sacrificing, he will be handed over to. Now, we would certainly say that Jesus is the greatest man with a capital M that has ever lived. And yet, this greatness was marked in large measure because of his willingness to sacrifice for us. So, true greatness is marked by a willingness to sacrifice for others. Though I am certainly not trying to compare what we might sacrifice toward one another to what Christ has sacrificed for us. But of course, his disciples don't understand. They can't fathom such a sacrifice and will not be able to until after his resurrection. But now they don't ask any questions. They are afraid to ask. Maybe they are still remembering what happened the last time Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. That was when Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, only for Jesus to in turn rebuke Peter by saying, get behind me, Satan. Perhaps all of the disciples have remembered that and have learned a lesson from that, and therefore they are now not willing to ask anything. Sacrifice is not a word that we often associate with greatness, other than to say that those who are great expect others to sacrifice for them. But in God's economy, greatness equals sacrifice. Jesus said on another occasion that the greatest example of love is that one would die for another. And indeed, that is what he is going to do for us, has done for us, and therefore he is a great Savior. And this ought to motivate us to listen to his definition of what it means to be great. So if we strive for greatness, we need to understand, first of all, that greatness equals a life of sacrifice, seen primarily in the example that Jesus gave for us in sacrificing for our sins and rising again that we might be saved, leading us then to desire to live a life of sacrifice. 
Secondly, we notice that greatness equals a life of service. As a result of the sacrifice that Christ has done for us, we ought to desire to live a life of service. As they return to the house in Capernaum, that has been a frequent stopping over place for them. We've seen this countless times where Jesus has retired to this particular house in order to get away from the crowd and to teach his disciples in a more private manner. So when they go into the house, he asks them a question. What were you discussing along the way? And of course, we know that they were discussing who was the greatest among them. Perhaps this, was, this debate was fueled by the fact that three of them had that unique opportunity to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon, with Jesus and see a glimpse of His glory. Maybe they are bragging about it. Maybe the other nine are jealous about it. But maybe this incident sparked this debate among the twelve as to who is the greatest. But whether it sparked it or not, it is absolutely stunning that they are having this debate right after Jesus has for the second time declared that he is going to die and rise again. More stunning is the fact that in every occasion, Mark records three predictions from Jesus about his death and resurrection, and after every single one of these predictions, the disciples are seen striving for their own personal ambition. You remember the first case, I've just referenced it a moment ago, Peter rebuked Jesus. And part of the reason he rebuked him is because they could not fathom a suffering Messiah. They did not want a suffering Messiah because they didn't want to walk the path of suffering. And then on the third occasion, which we'll see in a few weeks, right after Jesus predicts for the third time that he is going to be killed and rise again, we see James and John coming to Jesus and saying, would you grant that we could sit on your left and right when you come into your kingdom? And then in this case, of course, we see all 12 of the disciples having a dialogue about which one is the greatest. It is amazing that after all three of these, they are concerned about themselves, not about what Jesus has just told them to do. And certainly it is the height of arrogance it is the height of a desire for greatness to be in the presence of greatness, that is Christ himself, and be discussing among them who is the greatest. They cannot take their minds off of their own ambitions. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why so many professing believers find it hard to stop and to gaze at the glory and greatness of Christ, because we are too concerned as well with our own greatness to praise the one who is truly great. And again, this is why corporate worship is so important. Something I don't need to remind you of because you're here. But corporate worship is in large measure designed to gather on a weekly basis to take our minds and eyes off of ourselves and off of the world and to put them onto God and Christ. And when we do that, we see how great he is and we find our own perspective rightly changed. But instinctively, of course, they know that their conversation is sinful. They know that their argument is not what they should have been talking about, which is why they remain silent when Jesus asks the question. It is a silent confession is what it really is. 
They are too embarrassed to respond. And we know what that is like. We too have been caught red-handed at something. And rather than bother to confess, we just remain silent because everyone involved knows what is going on. I'll make a confession. I remember many years ago, I was returning home from church. At least get that part. I was coming home from church, but I was driving too fast in going home from church. And as I rounded a curve, I passed a state trooper, and I saw the taillights of that car come on. And I knew what that meant. I knew he was about to turn around and come after me. So I did a foolish thing. That is, I turned off of the main road and tried to go down some side roads so that he would not know where I had gone. It didn't work. He caught up to me, and he pulled me over, and this is many years ago, and yet I still remember the first thing he said when he came to the driver's side window of my car. He said, son, why did you turn off the main road back there? And I said, sir, I think we both know the answer to that question because I I didn't have to confess. We both knew what was going on. And these disciples don't confess what they are arguing about because they know they were doing something that they should not have been doing. And in response to their silent confession, Jesus teaches them and then illustrates that teaching about greatness, that greatness is about serving, serving others. It is not about our own position. It is not about our own rank or prestige. So here is another paradox of Scripture. Do you want to be first? Do you want to be great? Then it means you've got to be last, and it means you've got to be a servant to all. Jesus often turned worldly advice or wisdom on its head, and that is certainly what he is doing here. If you want to be great, if that's what you guys are talking about, and if that's your ambition, then you've got to understand that you must be a servant to all. We much prefer others to serve us. We expect service in our country and good service at that. We want others to minister to us. And as American wealth has increased, it has spawned all kinds of service industries catering to people so that now we pay others to do what we once used to do. I don't think my dad ever paid anyone to wash his car. I don't think my dad ever paid anyone to cut the grass. You know why? Because my dad had kids. That's what we were expected to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with paying other people to do what you don't want to do. There is nothing wrong with these service industries unless we get the attitude that often comes with it, and that attitude is that other people exist to serve me, and that fosters an attitude of superiority and greatness. But true greatness, Jesus said, is in a life of service and especially in service to the least of those who cannot reward us in return. We had a successful week of Camp Journey this week, and we look forward to another one starting tomorrow. It was successful in large measure because we had many wonderful volunteers who gave four days of their life to minister to and love on children. They served faithfully this week, which is a mark of true greatness. Even if the world will never recognize that truth, even if the parents of the children won't recognize that truth, God is recognizing that truth in saying that if you minister to the least of these, 
You are striving for and demonstrating greatness. And to illustrate this, Jesus takes a child. And he puts this child in the middle and in front of this whole group. Now, this is one of those cultural differences that we need to be aware of in order to fully understand this picture. We see this scene as a touching reminder. A cute kid is put in the middle of these disciples who have been arguing about greatness. Surely this will melt their hearts, and they will be reminded that there is more to life than what you achieve or the position you hold. But you need to understand that children were not the center of attention in the first century, as they often are in our day. Jesus does not bring this child into the midst of this discussion to serve as a great teaching moment as a portrait of a family. This is not a a tear-jerking moment. Children were the least of these. These were the kinds of people in society that were often overlooked and certainly not valued, and therefore Jesus takes this child and puts him or her in the midst of the disciples to demonstrate that if you want to be great, you've got to serve the least of these, and that certainly includes children. To receive such a child doesn't mean that you merely put him or her in your lap as Jesus has just done. Rather, it means to be concerned about, to care for, to show kindness toward. Again, exactly what our volunteers did this week. And in doing so, you are showing the love of Jesus and therefore demonstrating your relationship with God. I must always caution, of course, that this is not a work salvation teaching here. Jesus is not saying that if you receive a child, then you are saved. He is saying that by doing this, you are demonstrating that you are, in fact, a genuine believer. Jesus said of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And that is exactly what we've seen in these first two points. A true measure of greatness is a life of sacrifice. A true measure of greatness is a life of service. And not just toward those who can repay you in some way, but for anyone and everyone. Thirdly, you want to know what it means to be great? Greatness equals a life of humility. John now brings up an episode that is of concern to him. This is actually the only time that Mark, in his gospel, brings up John by himself. So John now approaches Jesus, and it seems there is an unnamed follower who is casting out demons, who is not part of the twelve, and this bothers John and presumably the others. Now, notice the irony of this. You remember what we talked about last week? Last week, we talked about a father who came to Jesus, only Jesus wasn't there. He was on the mountain with the three. And so this father comes to the remaining nine disciples, seeking to have a demon cast out of his son, and the nine disciples are not able to do it. And now John and the rest are bothered by the fact that there is another man who is not part of their group who has the power and authority to do what they are not able to do. And so John says, we tried to stop him. He is not happy about the fact that this man is doing this. Notice also that John says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
We might be okay with this if John says, he's not following you, speaking of Jesus. But that's not what John says. Presumably, this man is a follower of Christ. He does have the power and authority of Christ, and certainly Christ does not try to stop him. But John is bothered that he is not following them. So all indications are that John's concerned about his own position and his own prestige and how this other man is presumably undermining it by doing what he is not able to do. This is nothing more than pride, plain and simple, and perhaps jealousy as well. They had a narrow perspective on the work of God, believing that they had to be a part of everything. And that spirit still lives on today in those who refuse to work with others in the kingdom of God due to some minor difference of theological opinions, or those that believe that their church or their denomination is the only one that is true, it is the only one that is right, and it is the only one that is faithful. We have to understand that others are indeed genuine followers of Christ. They may not be Baptist. They may not be Southern Baptist. They may not go to our church or interpret things exactly the way that we do, but they are genuine followers of Christ. And therefore, we can work together with them to advance the name of Christ, which is what our interest ought to be. Our interest ought not to be primarily our name or our church or our denomination but instead it ought to be the advancement of the kingdom of God. But if we are interested in our own greatness primarily, then it's going to be difficult to do that. That's why I said that greatness equals a life of humility, which is the opposite of pride. Humility is another one of those words that we don't often associate with success or greatness. In fact, from a worldly standpoint, The exact opposite is true. We expect people who have achieved great things to be proud. We even say, well, the only or one of the reasons they got to where they are is because they have confidence in themselves. And so we expect greatness to be in some measure accompanied by pride, but Jesus expects the opposite. And I remind you that we are talking about greatness in the eyes of God. And once again, Jesus has modeled humility for us. And when we see it in these terms, it opens the door of greatness well beyond what we normally think. Greatness is now not reserved for those who have physical abilities that exceed others. Greatness is not now reserved for those who have talent or brains or beauty that exceed everybody else's. Greatness in God's eyes is available to anyone who humbly serves. That's what the cup of water is all about. He says, if you give a cup of water to someone in my name, this humble act of kindness does not go unnoticed by God, but is instead rewarded by him. And what a great encouragement to all of those volunteers who served this past week, who did give meals and made crafts and taught Bible stories and loved on kids, some of which don't get much, if any, of that at home. You might not consider yourself to be great for what you did, but God does. Jesus considers acts of humble kindness done in His name done for Him. And there is no distinction between a trivial act of handing someone a cup of water 
or doing something much more significant. There are no differences between trivial and important tasks in God's eyes. Humbly serving Jesus by serving others is a mark of greatness. So you want to be great? Greatness means a life of sacrifice. It means a life of service. It means a life of humility. And finally, it means a life of seriousness. Now, don't jump to conclusions. I'm not trying to say that life cannot be fun or that life cannot be enjoyable. God has indeed blessed us so tremendously in many ways so that we might enjoy life. When I say greatness equals a life of seriousness, I'm talking about being serious about sin, whether that is in the life of someone else or whether that is in our own life. Well, let's start by talking about seriousness in the life of someone else. That is being serious about sin in someone else's life. And I do not mean that to say that we now become the spiritual police of what everyone else is doing. Rather, I'm talking about making sure we don't contribute or lead someone else into sin. In verse 42, Jesus begins talking about the little ones again. And here he is not talking about literal children. He is talking about those who are followers of him. Maybe he means immature believers or new believers, but he pronounces a very serious and severe judgment on anyone who would lead or entice someone else into sin. Now, this does not mean that if you accidentally cause someone else to stumble, you are doomed for eternity. Nor do I believe that it means that if you do cause someone to sin and recognize it and repent of it, that you are doomed for eternity. This is not the unpardonable sin, but it is a serious issue. And again, the point is that Jesus so identifies with his children, that is, those who are his followers, that to cause one of his followers to go into sin, to entice them to stumble, is doing it against him personally. So we must be very careful that we do not destroy the faith of someone else, which means that we live a life of seriousness in, our, in regard to our own discipleship so that we can help others be faithful in theirs rather than faithless. And this seriousness with our own sin means we also uh, need to deal with our own sin seriously. That's what the remainder of this chapter is about. Now, before we dig into the most difficult part of this particular chapter, I do have to admit that there are some textual variants here. This is what Brandon has been teaching us about on Wednesday nights, and if you haven't joined us, we want to invite you to learn more about this. The more modern versions do not contain verses 44 and 46. They're just not there. Now, the King James does, but the ESV that I read from does not. But when those verses are present, the translations that do have them, they are exactly the same as what we find in verse 48. So verse 48 is merely repeated in verses 44 and 46, which is a great example of the fact that most, the vast majority of textual variants do not change the text. There is no change in meaning if verses 44 and 46 are there versus if they are not. And this is also a great example of a text that is not meant to be taken literally. Jesus is not urging you to literally cut your hand off or to chop your foot off or to gouge out your eyes. In fact, the Bible makes that explicit in other texts 
where we are not to destroy our own bodies. What he is saying here is the seriousness of sin, and it's all-inclusive. It includes where we go, it includes what we see, and it includes what we do. All three make the point that the kingdom of God is much more important than anything else, and we ought to be willing to forsake anything and everything else that would prevent us from pursuing the kingdom of God. So living a life of greatness must include recognizing true greatness, and true greatness is the kingdom of God, so much so that we are willing to do anything to pursue that end, especially given the alternative. And the alternative to the kingdom of God is an eternity in hell. And Jesus makes it very clear that this punishment is, in fact, eternal. It is not annihilation, which is rather popular today. It is eternal conscious punishment away from the presence of God, something that we don't like to talk about, but Jesus did. And so if you're not pursuing the kingdom of God, the alternative is not very pleasant. So he says we are to live as salt, meaning that we are to be purified through persecution. And that as we are purified, then we become a preserving influence upon our culture. Now, true salt cannot lose its saltiness. But the Dead Sea salt, which they were, of course, familiar with, did in fact have a lot of impurities and could lose its saltiness. And so he uses that as an illustration. And he says, do not lose your saltiness, meaning that we must be serious about holiness rather than serious about sin. And as a result, we live in peace with one another, which brings us back to where we began. Rather than arguing about who was the greatest, they were supposed to be living at peace with one another and focused on what true greatness really is. And like them, we get distracted with so many things, including our own pursuit of worldly greatness. And my prayer this morning is simply that we have been reminded that the pursuit of worldly greatness is not what the Christian ought to be focused on. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There is nothing wrong with pursuing greatness as long as we do so by God's measure and by God's standards. And that standard is a life of sacrifice, a life of service, a life of humility. And then we've seen that it is also a life of of seriousness, seriousness when it comes to sin. That is what I hope we are pursuing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for the clarity in which we see it. Thank you that the Holy Spirit illumines our minds, that we might understand it and therefore apply it. And we do pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that you would reprioritize our lives not so that we don't pursue greatness, but so that we do it according to your standard and according to your measure. And Lord, I pray that whatever we do, we would do with seriousness because we know the kingdom of God is the pearl of great price. It is to be valued above anything else. And so I pray that we'd be willing to do away with anything else that might hinder us so that we can be great in your eyes because Jesus Christ is our great Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.